last fielder. He's gone to the dogs. Welcome everyone to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. This is Steve Fielder coming at you one more time here on the DU Hunting Supply Network Hound Podcast. Uh, We want to thank our friends out in Washington State with DU Hunting Supply, W, uh, Buddy Woodbury, Jason Doobie, uh, my producer Shannon for making it possible for me to come to you each week on the network. And we have a terrific show for you today. Uh, this is uh, our guest today is a gentleman that uh, I first met about three years ago on a Freedom Hunters adventure uh, out to the Navajo Nation in Arizona. Uh, those of you I, um, that may be like I am and never ha- had any idea what the Navajo Nation entailed, uh, would probably be interested to know a little bit about it. And I want to give you just a little bit of a, a geography lesson here, if you will, and, and before we introduce our guest. Uh, actually, the Navajo Nation is a Native American territory that covers uh, 17 uh million five hundred forty four thousand five hundred acres that's about 17.5 million acres think about that next time you think about getting a hunting lease it occupies portion portions of uh, northeastern arizona northwestern new mexico and then there's a smaller portion that's in southeastern utah all in the united states and this is the largest land area that's retained by a Native American tribe in the United States. Uh, To kind of break that down to that 17.5 million acres, that's almost 28,000 square miles, and it's larger than 10 of our states. So let's just say it's a big place. And I went out there with the Freedom Hunters Adventure with Marine Tanner Babb uh, back when I was with uh, Houndsman XP, and we uh, were the, the guest of uh, our host, who is a Native American. He is Navajo. He is Calvin Redhausen. Calvin is in the house. How are you doing today, Calvin? I'm doing great, Steve. Man, it's great to hear your voice again. Uh, when I was out there hunting with you, I did get to talk to you a little bit around the uh, you know, before we went hunting and when we got back, but the rest of the time I was just trying to keep up with you. Uh, <laughs> we nicknamed you Ricky Bobby out there with the way you drove that Ford Ranger <laughs> around those ranch roads and, and uh, reservation roads and all that. But we sure had a great time out there, and I, I really enjoyed meeting you, and I wanted to get you back on the podcast for a long time. Uh and it's really good. It's really good. Uh, l- let's tell the folks who Calvin Redhouse is, a little bit about your, uh, where you b- were born, uh, a little bit about, um, oh, just, just give us a bio, if you would, Calvin. Yeah, no problem. Um, uh, Calvin Redhouse is my name. I was born and raised on the Navajo Reservation. Um, went to school here. Elementary school, high school, uh, graduated from Chinle High School, and I did a little bit of college, and I got tired of homework, so I decided to <laughs> join the Marine Corps. Um, 
after two years of college, I just up and said, you know what? My wife and I we talked, and she said, well, whatever you want to do, I'll support you. And I said, all right, well, I'm going to go sign some papers. And we left. And I did 10 and a half years with the Marine Corps, um, stationed all over. You know, uh, we went from Yuma to Miramar, Camp Pendleton, uh, 29 Palms to Japan. And then finally, in 2014, I up and uh, after, you know, we pulled out from Afghanistan and we pretty much, you know, I told my wife, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I, I've done my duty. Let's, let's go home and uh, see family. By this time, we had missed several um, funerals for, for grandparents and other family mm. members. And we, said, we, just, we just can't be away from home no more. So we, uh, we left. And we came home, but before we came home, this was, I got out in April, and we were, we were, where were we at? Oh, we were in, um, during Memorial Weekend, we got four days off from, uh, four days of, of Liberty, and we decided to, you know, said, wait, let's go take a drive up to Washington, D.C. and see the National Monument, and so that's what we did. And while we were out there, my brother-in-law, which is my wife, obviously my wife's brother, so um, he gave me a call, and he was like, hey, check this out. He sent me some pictures on my phone, and they had went out and um, were able to, you know, uh, put dogs down on two mountain lines, and they were able to um, harvest these two cats. And he was telling me about it, and I was just like, you know what, that sounds like something that I would want to do. And so I researched into it, found some local uh, natives around there in uh, North Carolina that coon hunt, and I had a good friend, one of my one of my Marines. He's like, hey, I know this, this old man that lives, you know, right off the north gate of uh, right there in North Carolina, and he's in Campbell June. He's like, I know, I know an old man. He's got some uh, walkers. He's like, uh, let's go over there and talk to him. That's where I got my dogs from. I was like, oh, all right. You know, I still didn't have a clue about, you know, cold nose, hot nose, warm <laughs> nose, you know, pedigree. Didn't know anything about that. I just knew, hey, I thought everything was the same. Hey, a hound dog to hound dog. They all have the same nose. And so I was like, you know what? It's, he's got hound dog. The name hound dogs are in it. So let's go over there. So. I pretty much walked into this thing, you know, blind and green footed, so to speak. So, um, and we uh, went out there, and the old man was like talking to me, and he's like, you know what? I just don't sell my dogs to anyone. I want to get to know you. I want to get to uh, know what your plans are with these dogs if you do take them. And so, every week after that, that first initial meeting for, Almost three weeks. We uh, we went out and did coon hunting with him. Hey, and that's something I didn't know that you had ever done, and I was going to ask you about that. I don't remember in our prior conversations whether we talked about coon hunting at all. Uh, and and let me ask you this: Do you have uh, raccoons on the reservation? We do, but it's very rare that you see them, and they kind of just stay near the lake where. The public trash cans are pretty much, you know, just like any other any other town on that, yeah, around sure. there. 
So uh, right. there is a couple. So uh, so we went out and coon hunted, and the first couple times, I'm not going to lie, I was chicken. We were walking, and next thing you know, I was, you know, ankle deep in water, and he was like, yeah, you need to watch out for snakes and a couple alligators sometimes. And I looked at him, I was like, what? He's like, yeah, um, where the dogs are, they're about maybe four or five hundred more yards, and they're treated with a coon. So uh, we just need to be careful for, you know, snakes out here. And I was just like, oh, no, that's it. I'm done. So I'll wait in the vehicle for you. Uh, you can. And that's what I did. You know, I cut my losses. I said, nope, I'm done. So I, draw the, I draw the line of reptiles. So. <laughs> Well, you've got some rattlesnakes out there, don't you, in Arizona? Oh, yeah, we do, but not uh, very few in our area. Um, I I probably see one or two rattlesnakes a year, and those are, you know, small, small rattlesnakes that, Mm. you know, that were probably born within the season, and they're just out venturing out and looking for new territory. Well, I'm kind of with you there on the snakes. You know, I moved to Florida back in 2013, I believe it is. And uh, still, when I'm out there now, it has gotten better. You know, my paranoia has gone away somewhat. But I, when I was out there hunting at night, you know, one of the first hunts that I took here, uh, you know, I got a dog bitten by a cottonmouth moccasin. Um, Another trip encountered uh, a, a cottonmouth uh, right near the tree where the dogs were treed. So, you know, <laughs> it had me, you know, looking. The guys down here say, if you don't look for them, you won't see them, you know, and that's kind of the attitude they have. But, yeah, I'm with you there. I'm not a real big uh, snake fan, <laughs> Calvin. <laughs> so what happened so, then? So, yeah, so he... You know, he got to, I warmed up to him and he was like, you know what? It sounds like you have a good plan for these dogs. And I would, you know, I would like to see if, you know, my, my bloodline can uh, be able to handle big game animals. So he's like, all right, let's, so he was able to set me up with two dogs, a male and a female. Uh, we picked them up when they were right around nine weeks mm-hmm. and I packed up my family, uh, my wife and my son. We flew my mother-in-law out to North Carolina, and we asked her if she wanted to take a drive across the country back home with us, and she said yes, so we flew her out. And we lowered up the, the truck and put the dogs in the back in a kennel and hooked up the U-Haul trailer, and we traveled back across country from North Carolina down to Florida, straight down to Florida, and then all the way across on the bottom to uh, from New Orleans, Yep. to, you know, San Antonio and whatnot because there, there was right. a pretty, uh, there was a bunch of snowstorms in the middle of the country and we didn't want to drive through that. So we went down south and made our way back west. Well, I did that one time in the opposite direction from L.A. all the way into uh, central Florida here. And I was go traveling east on Interstate 10 and you were traveling west, obviously. Yeah? Yes, sir. Well, that's so great. I got... Yeah, so I got back, and uh, I introduced the puppies to my brother-in-law's pack. He had already started a pack of hound dogs, and essentially, he's the one that got me started on hound hunting. He uh, introduced it to me, showed me everything he knew. Um, I didn't start off 
you know, pretty much from scratch. Um, he already had dogs that were, you know, lined out and had already been on a couple of uh, bears and mountain lions. And my dogs just got thrown in the mix and I just tagged along whenever I could and learned and picked up here and there from my brother-in-law. Yeah. And my brother. And, uh, and that's pretty much how it came. And two years went by and I got to know how hunting a little bit better, understand what the dogs are doing learn as, as much as I could from um, the internet and YouTube from how to use the handhelds and how to read and figure out what, what was what was going on. And two years later, my brother-in-law was like, you know what? You can, you can make money doing this. And I was like, how's, how's that? And he told me, he was like, well, you can become a guide. You just need to get your uh, guiding license through the Navajo Nation. And you can take people out hunting and they can pay you to take them out hunting and then you can use that money to pay for dog food, uh, vehicle expenses, maintenance and whatnot. And I was like, all right, well, let me look into it. And, you know, another year went by and that was my third year. And I finally be able to pull the trigger on it and I got my gun license and I went from there, you know, um, well, well I, I see you as a guy that when you want to do something, you go after it. Uh, Calvin and I, I saw that in the way that you worked uh, your tail off for us out there uh, on that Freedom Hunters uh, adventure. Which, uh, uh, for those listeners that may not know, the Freedom Hunters organization takes uh, veterans, uh, uh, active duty personnel, their sometimes their families, the Gold Star families, and so forth on outdoor adventures. It might be fishing. It might be hunting and of course we were happy to be able to be involved in that from a houndsman standpoint and that first hunt was was with you my first experience and then I was able to take a couple of hunts out in Virginia with my friend Heath Hyatt bear hunts with veterans through Freedom Hunters so it was just a great time but I saw you in action out there and uh, I think, you know, we talk about these dogs being a naturals, uh, being naturals. Some of them that just naturally take to it. Others that we have to, uh, you know, we have to uh, uh, do some training, so to speak, with them. Not that uh, all of them don't need some degree of training. But at any rate, uh, I saw you as just being a natural hound guy. Uh, but the one thing that really stood out to me when I was out there with you is the fact that you are a hunter. You go at it. Uh, you um, are relentless in your pursuit. <laughs> and I think that's the key to anybody that has hounds is they have to be a hunter first in order to have good hounds. Do you have any comment on that? Yeah, that's uh, one, that I would say that's about 100% accurate, you know, if you don't have the drive and the, you know, ability to go out and hunt every day, then you're not going to make it in the hound hunting community. That's pretty much what I've seen from my experience anyway. If you don't put 100% into it, you're not going to get the, the type of quality dogs that you need to ensure that, you know, that you can actually have fun and get it done. Not to say that chasing young pups up and down the mountain because they don't know what to do is not fun, but... <laughs> <laughs> we chased Daisy around one day there, I think, didn't we? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Daisy got free. Now, now Daisy's the lead dog. She went from chasing just about, you know, trashing on just about everything to being the lead dog now. So yeah. now she's up in front. She's the one that I rely on. So well, I want to talk. Yeah, you bet. Well, I do want to talk to you about your dogs in just a minute, but uh, I will ask you about Noss. Is he is he still in the pack? Yes, sir. He is still there. He's an old stubborn man. So he <laughs> <laughs> it's he, come to the point where I got to feed him three times a day just to keep weight on him, just because he's old. And mm. I tried leaving him in the kennel and try to turn him into a house dog, and will not have it. I, I get you. up in the morning, go down to the kennels and start loading up the dogs. And he's the first one in the dog box. So I'm like, you know what? Let's just go. I'll let the young dogs go do their thing. And then after that, we'll, uh, we'll, you'll walk with me to the tree. But nope, I made the mistake of leaving one of the, one of the doors slightly unlatched and he was gone. I got back and then I was walking out to the dogs. And next thing you know, here comes Nas, opened up right behind me, passed by me, kept on going. And he was at the, he was. He got caught up with the rest of them, like a mile away, and then helped them push, push past some dry, <laughs> dry spot. So I mean, he's got the driving dedication, determined to keep on going. So I just don't know when I'm gonna, you know, say all right, that's right. that's it, buddy. Um, you've done your job. Let's let's keep you here at the house more often. But I don't know if that's even gonna happen. Well, he's a beautiful red tick hound. Just, uh, just a beautiful specimen. Uh, and I kind of, uh, enjoyed, you know, when I know one time there in, in the snow, it may have been the last day that we were hunting. Uh, we were up on top there where we went over the mountain, uh, and, uh, you know, trying to start that line. And I thought there for a while that Noss was going to be able to take it because he sure was working hard at it. But anyway, um, let, okay, this is a good uh, opportunity for, uh, I guess, if uh, uh, if we jump ahead of the timeline here a little bit, maybe that's okay. But you hunt how many, you, you, your pack of dogs are all hound, are they not? Yes, sir. Okay. And you did have, when I was out there, you did have some registered walkers in the pack, did you? Didn't you? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The um, Daisy, Daisy is her. Daisy is the offspring of Star, and Star's the one of the two walkers that the the female that I brought back from North Carolina. She's registered. Okay. Now, do you recall the background on Star? Oh, breeding? I would have to look. I I have not looked at her pedigree in forever. I can't even yeah. remember off the top of my head. Um. So for me, um, I don't really look at pedigrees. I don't. I don't do too much with, you know, paperwork as far as the dogs. Um, right. If their nose works, that's it. They stay with me and they're, they can, you know, come hunt with me as long as their nose works. Um, color, you know, I'm not colorblind, so I don't see one specific pack of dogs as being my favorite. Um, if they can help me out and help out the pack, you know, accomplish the ultimate goal of ensuring that we can get that animal in the tree hey i'm all for it so um but yeah she is star is registered i, I would have to look at that look back at her pedigree sure. in order to, to look at that well i think you're typical of many of the western houndsmen uh calvin that traditionally through the years have uh 
hunted what we would call crossbred or uh, at one time in the coonhound game, we called them grade dogs. Uh, but it, at any rate, they're full hound, but they're, they're just not bred to a specific standard or within a specific breed. It, wouldn't that be pretty fair? Yeah. So um, I've got one full-blooded walker, four full-blooded blue ticks, and the rest are all completely mixed with black and tan, um, blue ticks, walker. And uh, I just went to, I just got some dog, two puppies from uh, Amarillo, Texas this past weekend. And their walker plot mixes. So, oh. um, so we're about to, we're about to see what happens with that, with that bunch here. They are right around 12 weeks now. So um, they're yapping at the house. My wife's like, oh, your two babies are crying again. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, real quickly, let's interject. I, I met your wife. What a lovely lady. You have two children, I believe, correct? Yes, sir. Um, my son, who is 15, and my daughter just turned six this the beginning of this month. Right. So she was only three when when we were out there then. Wow. Yeah. What a doll. <laughs> She's, well, that that's great. You do have a beautiful family. And I, and I appreciate it so much being able to be out that way and to learn a lot of things that I didn't know before, especially about your culture and so forth. And, uh, and it's just a fascinating place. But you've got... Um, I guess primarily, well, let's see, I, I, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Now, we got on the dogs. Let's talk about the dogs just a minute more, and then I have some other questions for you. Well, right now, you say the Daisy dog is your is leading your, your pack of dogs? Yeah, she's a, she's, a, she's about three years old right now. You know, Nosh is, Nosh is about 12, and he's still pushing – pushing one to get out there um star is right around um about five or six mm -hmm. rico is about eight or nine right now um right. and then the rest all fall in the line between two years and younger so right and now you I had have, some blue tick puppies i believe blue tick colored puppies when i we were there about three years ago the puppies you had then what what have they done do you remember which they, one? Yeah, um, they came around and they were doing good. They had lots of grit, and that was those were the ones that came from Gary Robinson. Um, he was able to, you know, hook me up with those puppies, and they came around. And I do a lot of work with fish and wildlife because my my brother, like I was telling you, my brother-in-law works for Fish and Wildlife. Right. He's actually a game warden, and so the dogs work year round no matter if it is bear season lion season hunting season or guiding season they work year round if it is the animal is not in season the dogs are still working because of all the depredation calls that I got you. the uh, mm -hmm. fish and wildlife get and my brother-in-law will use the dogs now to go do all these depredation calls and we end up having every now and then I'd probably say we lose about one to two dogs during these depredation calls because these depredation calls with bears are the mean, big, mm -hmm. gnarly boars that just have been around houses, people, and dogs to where 
they don't care and they're just they're just horrible and they have um they put up a fight well i can see that and uh you know that's a little bit different i think uh in the way certainly that we used to do it back in west virginia because uh, on these depredation calls the the um, game department would call the hunters to go out and answer the call on those those nuisance bear and so forth. Of course, we didn't have mountain lions out there, but uh, so you the department itself handles those those calls for you, right? Yeah, um, sometimes uh, depending on location, of, sometimes depending on the location of the call, you know, I'll volunteer to go in because I know. You know, it's easier for me to be able to attract the dogs and then contact my brother-in-law and be like, hey, I'm going to walk across, you know, at, to this road with the dogs. Come pick me up on that side. And we kind of work as a team to um, minimize the amount of travel for myself and the dogs. So either that or the dogs will go off the side into a canyon or down the side of the mountain. And I'll tell, you know, my brother-in-law, you know, meet me at the bottom or maybe on the other side of the canyon and teach to get up on that side. And that's how we kind of work out together and, and figure this out. <clears throat> and folks, when he's talking about this side of the canyon, that side of the canyon, no, that's not your average walk in the park. <laughs> you cover a lot of ground on one of those hunts. You know, you were talking about uh, that, being able to get out on these depredation calls, and I immediately thought, well, what a great way to train your pups. But then I'm, I'm thinking also what you said about a lot of these calls are on those uh, pretty rank animals that uh, have one thing in mind, and it's probably to kill and destroy. So uh, so I guess that's kind of a toss-up. Do you take young dogs out on these, these uh, depredation calls? I used to take young dogs out, and then I've had a couple experiences where the bear is so mean that it just put the, you know, mm. um, it just scares the, the dog away. And oh, after yeah. that, that dog is not, you know, doesn't like to chase bears after that. So I kind of learned my lesson. So I stopped taking younger, inexperienced mm -hmm. dogs out on these mm -hmm. calls because I didn't want them experience, you know, a, a charging bear um, at them the entire time to the point where they, you know, think that, hey, every bear charges and every bear is just out to kill me. So I usually don't try not to take him unless they've seen bears firsthand um, about two or three times before I actually take him out on a right. depredation call. Well, I think that's definitely a good uh, piece of advice there for anybody that's listening. I don't, it doesn't matter whether you're a bear hunter. And I know that, you know, having been in the plot breed for all the years that I have, uh, you know, and there's all this talk about grit and, and, you know, how much uh, the, the dog will get in there and mix it up with the bear. I've seen and heard the stories for years of young dogs that were, uh, you know, actually ruined by a bad bear because they were too young to, you know, they, they simply got scared. It's like we were as kids, you know, we were might have been afraid of the dark. As we get to be adults, we're no longer afraid. And uh, that applies to the coon hunters, too. You know, I've seen coon hunters let uh, puppies get exposed to a wild raccoon in a, in a fight situation, you know, that 
actually uh, set the dog back a lot. So uh, we have a lot of listeners, Calvin, that are uh, fairly new hunters uh, or, you know, inexperienced. They might be young. They might be uh, older, but they're fairly new to the sport. So I like to try to do as much teaching as we can on these podcasts to help people, not to try to illustrate that I know or our guest knows more than they do, but we do like to help. And I think that's a good lesson right there for sure. Well, beyond Daisy and uh, what, uh, who, who's the up and coming star in the pack right now? The up and coming stars. So um, I've got a two year old right now. His name is Magnin and mm-hmm. he's, he's coming along. He's, he's working. He's, he's been to about nine or 10 lines this season. So He's uh, making his way up among the ranks. And then um, I had a, this past, let's see, September, I had a litter of pups. And um, every one of the pups, except for one, got parvo and weren't able to, oh, you know, make it make it through. So um, I've only got one pup out of there. And he is... He has uh, shown great, great potential. Um, he goes, uh, doesn't stop. He crawled out of the dog box a couple of times and then got into the middle of the race and kept on going. Dogs left him behind about maybe 800 yards. He stopped, op- the, he stopped opening. His name is Scrappy. And so he <laughs> stopped opening, and I was watching him on the handheld to see what he would do if he would backtrack to me or if he would keep going. And next thing you know, the dog's open again, and he just figured out which way the sound was going and went straight to them. Oh, there you go. And the dogs had bait up a lion down in, down on the canyon ledge, and his handheld disappeared, and the question mark came up. I was like, okay, well, hopefully he's there, or he just went into a different draw, and, you know, I lost signal with him, but... Where I lost signal with him is down towards where the rest of the dogs are, so he's got to be there. So I, we end up going in there, and sure enough, they had that, they had that lion, that mount, that that tom, bait up alongside the canyon, the, the rock wall, and sure enough, they were, they were within two feet of that lion, and Scrappy was right in the middle of the mix, staying right there, staying right down on that lion, just opening up on that lion. So I was like, all right, well, I think he might make it, and he is. <laughs> Let's see, I think he's eight months right now. Wow, that's awesome. What uh, describe him? What's he look like? What breed is he? He is a blue tick. Um, he is. What did they say? Uh, the father is from Bill a uh, Bill Anderson line. I think it was, if I remember correctly. Dave Anderson up in Montana. No, no, no. no, it's no, not no. Bill Anderson is a, a different. Okay. Guy okay. Local, kind of locally from around this region. Okay. So he's he's making he's he looks to be like a good dog. So I might make that cross again just because of how he came out. I mean, there's no telling. Sure. You know, he might have been the only one out of the pack that would have been able to do what he's doing, or you know, the entire batch of that entire batch of that litter was capable of doing the same thing he was, and just you know yeah. had the unfortunate accident of you know, try, of not being able to get past Parvo. So, yeah, you know, so that's going to make that cross again. Yeah. Sounds like something I would do. <laughs> well, you know, um, 
that's the frustrating part when you have a litter that, you know, you don't get to see them all grow up. So you really don't know. And, and we've always said, you know, I want a pup that's, uh, that's from an entire litter of good dogs, not just the outstanding uh, pup from uh, an otherwise mediocre litter as far as for using for uh, future breeding purposes. So, but anyway, this way we have no way of knowing. So I'm sure if he's that good, you'll probably find a mate for him at some point down the line if he continues to prog progress like he did or is doing. There's two things I want to ask you. Calvin, I saw a picture on Facebook that um, uh, really intrigued me, a picture of a lion on the side of a cliff. What is that the story that you were telling about Scrappy? Yes, sir. That is the exact same story. Um, you can't see the dogs in that picture because they're lower, maybe about two feet, because right where I took that picture from, there's a little hill that goes up, and then it drops back down, and then that cat is sitting higher while the dogs are are in that little, uh, that little ditch or ravine right below the lion. I see. That was a fantastic picture. Uh, where were the dogs in that, uh, in relation to the lion? They were down at the foot of the cliff or up above? Yeah, they were at, they were at the foot of that lion. That lion was uh, right, right above them. I see. That's pretty, pretty awesome. Well, you've always uh, impressed me with the pictures and the video and so forth that you get. You mentioned Gary Robertson uh, of uh, Menard, Texas, and uh, our listeners, prob if you don't know Gary, he's the guy that produces the Carnivore TV show uh, on the Pursuit Network. I guess that's where they are still. Uh, how did you and Gary get together, and, and how did you get into the video uh, side of things? So I met Gary through um, through my brother-in-law. Uh, my brother-in-law was, we went out uh, hunting and, and uh, looking for elk, and we ran across Gary in this remote area, part of the, the Navajo Nation, and he was trailing a, a mountain lion. Him and his son, Steve, were out filming and trailing a mountain lion, and I got to meet Gary. Um, we really didn't talk that time. Um, Cause they were trying to get to their dogs. And so we let them, we, you know, we just let them be and do their own thing on that side. And we went and we went on to go scout for, um, for elk. A couple of days later, they gave us, a, they gave uh, my brother-in-law a call and said, Hey, we're going to go, you know, kayak call. You guys want to come tag along and uh, join us. And so we said, yeah, my brother-in-law was like, yeah, well, we'll, we'll be out there and I'll bring, you know, my brother-in-law was like, I'll bring my brother-in-law and we'll, um, We'll, uh, we'll uh, meet you out there. So during that, during a couple of uh, sets, uh, we were able to talk, and he found out that, you know, I like to film and make videos. And he asked me, he's like, well, do you have a job? And this was at the point where um, I was two years out of the Marine Corps. I just still didn't have a job because um, finding a job in our area is very scarce because there's not too much employment. So. Um, that entire first two years after I got the Marine Corps, we kind of just lived off of our savings. And he offered me a job to either one go back to Texas and and um, help help the local ranchers and and uh, be a ranch hand. And then the other one he offered me he goes well, or you can be my cameraman and film all these hunts, and uh, we'll make you a part. We'll make you 
the um, the camera guy for us. <laughs> and so I took that offer, and I told him, I was like, yep, all right, well, uh, I can do that. I can film all the hunts for you. So I uh, became the cameraman for them. So all of my all my hunts uh, was clients. I filmed the hunt. I get the entire story, and then I had them sign a media release stating that I can use uh, all the pictures and videos sure. that we take during their hunt to, for social media and uh, that. Um, national tv so and that's how we're able to use it and, well that's, uh, that's awesome. what i do for them yeah well that's terrific that that really gary's a great guy and i met him through social media and through this the project the uh freedom hunters project that we did uh what about uh a good line hunting story from this uh did you have any uh really interesting hunts this uh Last season, I should ask you right here, are you still hunting or is the season over now? This season is still open. Um, it closes all the way for mountain lions on June 31st. Oh, okay. Um, sure. Bobcats is year-round. Uh, spring bear hunt should be coming up here real soon. I got you. So that's the three species that you hunt, right? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Did you Did you have a particularly interesting hunt besides the one that you treat on the on the uh, cliff with Scrappy and company. The only other hunt that that comes to mind at this moment is um, I had a this. I think I believe this is one of the ones that I told you. I had a client. He was an older gentleman from uh, Missouri, and we went out. It was the fourth day of our hunt, and we um, put down on a on an average on an average lion, and Austin and Rico were the only two that were out trailing. And next thing you know, they came up tree. And so we said, oh, I told them that we'll get as close as we can. And it was three quarters of a mile away. We had two hours left before the sun, before uh, sunset. And legal shooting hours is 30 minutes after sunset and 30 minutes before sunrise. And right. so I told them, I said, we have two hours to get to there, judge the cat, and at least shoot it. And then we can take our time skin it out or we just leave the animal and then we come back the next day and skin it out. And so there was about maybe a foot and a half of snow in the low country. And we did. We we started walking and <laughs> we started walking when it, it was it was the temperatures the temperatures were in the teens. Um and we by the time we got there and decided to shoot the cat, the cat was in the small juniper tree, no higher. I think the highest limb was maybe about eight feet high was the highest limb, but that, that lion was right at the top. Nasa was halfway up the tree, and Rico was right behind him, maybe about a quarter of the way up the tree. And uh, my shooter had a three fifty seven Magnum that... Um, was single shot. You have to manually reload it after every shot. And I told him, I was like, after you shoot, you automatically just start reloading. No matter what, just automatically start reloading. He's like, okay. So <laughs> he's like, I can't see it. I was like, well, do you see Nos? Nos is right there. And we were about maybe three feet from that tree. So we were right underneath of that lion. And there was limbs. This was a really thick tree. And he's like, yeah, I see Nos. I was like, well, go up about a foot. You'll start to see the lion. 
And sure enough, he's like, oh, okay, now I see it. I was like, yeah, right there, shoot him. So he's like, all right. So he shoots, and I thought the mountain lion would jump out of the tree away from us, but that didn't happen. That cat jumped back towards us, landed a foot from my, from our, from where we were standing. I pushed the shooter out of the way, and that cat took off back down the down the hillside from us and didn't make it 80 yards. And uh, and it was just. And I was able, and me being the cameraman for Carnivore TV, I didn't <laughs> stop filming. So if you go on to, um, not last season, but the season before, if you go on to um, Pursuit, Pursuit Up is an app that you can use, a free app that you can use to watch Carnivore TV's um, episodes. And it's on there. You can watch that episode. So and that's two years ago. That would be... 2020 or 2021? Yeah. yeah, 2020. I think it was the 2019-2020 season. Okay. There you go, so, folks. Uh, Carnivore TV, it's on the Pursuit app on your on your phone or your computer. And uh, it, it, do you remember the title of that, uh, that show? Yeah, that show was uh, Naval Houndsman Part 2. All right. There you go, Folks, you want to meet Calvin Redhouse and see these hounds we've been talking about and see some apparently incredible action. I can't wait to see that one myself. I'm going to go there as soon as we're through uh, recording, Calvin. Well, okay, so this year, I mean, as a rule, you know, trailing conditions are pretty tough out there, right? Most of your cats... Are, are are your lion hunts, are they on dry ground or are they on snow or is there a mixture of both? It's a mixture of both. Um, when I do have a client, I call them out during the snowstorms. So when there's a, snow, uh, a big snowstorm coming in, I'll give them a week's call in advance notice and let them know, hey, the snowstorm is hitting on this day. We're going to start hunting the day after. That's just to ensure that we improve our chances to um, get that hunter tagged out. You know, I mean, there's nothing worse than not giving, you know, your client, a big client, all um, the biggest opportunity you can to ensure that they can, you know, put their tag on a on their animal. Why, so sure. that's how I run my services when I have when I have clients. Okay, but this is just, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. But when it's just myself, like right now, all my clients are done with, they're tagged out, they're gone back to um, where they're from, and right now it's just me, so being the dog. So I'll saddle up the mules, and I'll leave from the right there in the back of my house and just go straight up into the mountains, trail them after the dogs on the mules. Okay, now that I'm glad you brought that up because I know that, that when – I was out there hunting with you. You did not use the mules. In fact, I don't think you had any mules when I was there three years ago, did you? No, I got the mules a year ago now. Yeah, let's hear that story. <laughs> yeah, so um, I had some friends come down from Utah, and they brought mules down. And they got me hooked, to be honest with you. we They left their mules at the house at my house, and then the next morning they came back, we loaded up the mules, and we went to the canyon, and we put down the dogs, and we rode after the dogs on mules, and we we must have trailed 
maybe about eight or nine miles along that canyon edge, and it was just being able to see so much more country on mule on the on a mule's back, and be able to trust that mule and the the sheer footedness of a mule versus a horse is just remarkable. I mean, they say that a mule well a mule's eyes are further apart off to the side of the head, so a mule can see its back hoof. So it sees where it can, where its back hoof is going, so he has better, better footing while walking on the stuff. And they have more muscle; they get their their muscles from the from the from the jack from the donkey. Yeah, the hybrid. Yeah, that hybrid vigor we talk about in breeding dogs, the crossing, and they are a hybrid. A mule can't reproduce itself, so yes, sir. Uh, but. Uh, yeah, I noticed that, and it really didn't take you all that long to become a mule skinner, let's say. <laughs> Seemed like you you're a pretty quick study. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'll give credit where credit's due, and I watched a lot of YouTube on how to how to train how to train mules. Um, I've talked to um, Brett Vaughn. Oh, yeah. From, and, of course, he works with W as well. He has his own podcast with W Board. Right. 100 years too late, and right. I talked to him, I, you know, picked his brain left and right, um, and, of course, my friends that have meals up in Utah, I picked their brains left and right as well, and any anybody that will listen to me about my complaints or give me tips on how to be a better billsman, houndsman, I'm all for it. I mean, if you ain't learning, you know, there's, you just ain't going to get any better. If you You're ain't not growing, are you? Now, you mentioned, no, did sir. you say the Hatfields in Utah? What did you say oh, about the hunters in Utah? What name? Oh, uh, Mike Daly. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I I misunderstood you. I thought you said the name Hatfield, and that oh, no. that piqued my interest because that's my mother's name. Okay, that that's my bad okay. there. Well, yeah, I oh, know yeah. that you uh, – and and as you were talking there, first I immediately thought of Brent uh, Brett Vaughn and uh, his YouTube series, Born a Hundred Years Too Late, as you said. Really interesting stuff. And uh, uh, the first coon hunt that I ever went on as a kid, and I've talked about it many times, I was about three years old when my dad on my grandfather's mule in Tennessee. So, and I have hunted coons on mules. I hunted in, in Michigan, some I hunted in Texas on mule. And, uh, and then I did uh, hunt horseback in New Mexico with, uh, 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 some of the hunters out there. So, yeah, I get it. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, but at the same time, if you're not used to riding, you can be pretty sore, can't you? <laughs> oh yeah, the first the first two days of me riding, you know, I was so excited. Well, I had to train the mules up first, and then after I was able to build up enough confidence to, you know, take them out riding and with the dogs. Um, the first two days, the first day, I was fine. We went out and we rode for about maybe six hours straight. After that, the second and third day, man, I was so sore. I was <laughs> I was walking around bow legged, and my wife was making fun of me. But now it's 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 fine now to where I yeah. can get up and go, and it doesn't bug me one bit. Okay, now 
is there a special outfitter that you use to outfit your mules for hunting and all? Are there certain places that that carry uh, special needs for, or is it just the same? Is, I mean, do you just basically the rigging and all the the tack, I should say? Okay. Uh, all right, yeah. So it it all it all varies, but the main thing you want because mules and horses have different bone structures and they walk differently. Um, a mule's front shoulders work like a piston. They go vertical up and down. Uh, a shoulder of a horse kind of works in a circular, horizontal, uh, oval motion to where it doesn't really bug them if the saddle is sitting really forward up above the shoulders. But a mule, if you put that saddle up above where their shoulders were, because it's their, their shoulders go up and down like a piston, their shoulders will rub straight into the the um the saddle and they will get saddle sore really bad and so the tack that they use they are specially made to have a a bigger pitch to ensure that you know the the the, the um, saddle is not rubbing on the I mule they call them they call them mule bars versus quarter horse bars that's just the foundation of the saddle and of course, you know, uh, a horse's back is more swayed yes. um, than than a mule's. A mule's back is just pretty much straight across right. in a straight line. So it's got the mule's got more of a a flatter a flatter back. So the saddle is not concave as much when you're when you're in it. It's, it's totally built different. And then because the mule's back is completely straight, you got to have if you're going up and down you know, hills and steep inclines and declines, you need to have a strap that will go back either around the rear end, which they call a britching. Right. It goes around the rear end to keep the saddle from sliding forward. Or a, uh, I think it's called a grouper, where it attaches and it goes around the tail of the mule to keep it from going forward. But from my research and what I've learned, you know, if you do a lot of, vertical and um um uh a lot of horse uh vertical or steep in inclines mm-hmm. yeah steep decline then mm-hmm. uh a grouper is not not the perfect one you know you eventually will hurt that mule's back because that grouper pulls on that on the rear of the base of the tail so if you go down a steep part of the hill and that saddle really slides forward, you can really hurt that mule's back because you're you're compressing the spine of that mule and you're gonna hurt, you're gonna pinch nerves, give your mule all kinds of problems. So if you're doing a lot of, you know, up and down motions, it's called the grouper would be not the the britching would be best because that runs around the hind end of the mule to keep it from sliding forward. And of course you've got the breast collar, which everybody who knows anything about horses or mules, a breast collar just keeps the mule or the saddle from riding towards the rear end of the animal. So, and it, and there's variations of tack out there that you can use. There's certain saddles that saddle makers use. Um, as long as it kind of has mule bars, um, you can, you can work and you can get, get one that will fit your animal. As far as the tack that I use to, put on the saddle, I like to use um, what they call um, um, 
Mountain Ridge Mountain Ridge gear. It's a out of it's a US uh made company out of uh Peyton, Colorado. He specifically does um tack for mules, you know, he uh, he does a lot of uh donkeys and tacks for for those animals. So I kinda go through that through him if I need, you know, um if I need stuff to haul out of animals and, and uh and everything. So that's who I go through for tack. I got you. Well, that's all very interesting stuff and something that I have heard these terms about the breaching and uh, breaching and so forth and, and all, but uh, never really being a horse person or a mule person. Uh, I appreciate all that because we try to give a little a smorgasbord of information on this podcast. And here you come, uh, Calvin, with, uh, with a whole lot of good info, info for anybody that wants to uh, uh, ride their a mule on a coon hunt, a bear hunt, or whatever. And uh, it's just a really interesting kind of an organic, as we say, way to hunt, I think. Do it like they did it years ago, you know? Yes, sir. I mean, getting back to the root, pretty much the ultimate goal, you know, um, the way Ben Lilly and all of them did it, you know? Yeah. I mean, Right well, now, I, I consider myself cheating by putting GPS collars on dogs, but, you know, from time to time, it's come to the point where now I know what the dogs sound like, you know, now I know what the dogs are doing just by listening to them, um, but, you know, eventually, you're, I end up looking at the handheld. I try to do a little bit less looking at the handheld and more trying to listen to what the dogs are doing and saying and trying to figure it out that way, but, you know, it's technology use it to your advantage so well of course and you know and that's the gospel that we're trying to teach on this podcast that learn that dog learn every sound that he makes keep the garment in your pocket if you need it to know you know the dog is out of pocket lost or near a roadway or something absolutely use it but for the most part of the hunt Keep that screen in your pocket. Listen to your dog, and you'll learn a whole lot more about being a, a good hound person than you will with your nose in that screen. And it's not easy, you know, with this age we live in today. Uh, you know, we start them from the time they're they're little now. You know, with the, their own cell phone and so forth. So, but uh, well, hey, how how would you? Uh, rate the hunting conditions this this winter and all compared to other years. Did you have a pretty good year or what? Um, it was a little bit a little bit harder to find cats this year than it was the previous years. And um, the, at the beginning of the season, we had this huge windy snowstorm that it was windy. I think we had we reached a temperature high, you know wind speeds for this area and i think what happened was they it pushed a lot of the cats up and over the mountain to the other side to, to where mm -hmm. the the mountain was uh blocking majority of the wind so right. um we had to actually drive up and over the mountain to the side that we were hunting when you were out here around there majority of the time because the size that i like used to find all the cats they just weren't there all the deer were there, but the lions weren't. Or there were mm. lions there. They were small. They were smaller lions. And um, I see. 
Well, normally you'd but, find the lions where the deer herds are, though, would you not? Normally. Yeah. Um. Uh. A mountain lion's main sort, main diet is um probably around eighty percent mountain uh mule deer here. Um, right. And then maybe, and then you throw in elk, but don't get me wrong, uh, mountain lions are opportune opportunistic animals if they get a chance to eat a skunk they'll eat a skunk skunk they need well that's interesting because something it was popped up on social media the other day and asked what animals eat skunks you know and i think some do you think a bobcat will eat a skunk i yeah we i had i think five years ago he was one of my very first clients um his name was i think his name was canaan Kenan Matthews, and he was from Oklahoma. We uh, we went out and we found this cat track and we put down on it. And he was so excited. He was like, "Man, I want I want to eat this meat. I want to, you know, taste what a mountain lion looks tastes like." And I was like, "All right, well, we're gonna we'll pack out this cat and we'll make sure that we, you know, cut cut and take a lot of this meat out." So, oh, so for those of you listening, I'm sorry. Let me give you a little story, a little background story here. So the Navajo Nation. You're not required to pack out the meat for bear and mountain lions because in our traditions, we don't hunt mountain lions or bears and we don't eat mountain lions or bears. Because of that, the Navajo Nation doesn't require non-Navajos to, you know, pack out the meat for mountain lions and bears. So this client decided, you know, hey, I want to try the, try mountain lion meat. So um, let's... uh. Let's get this done. So that's what we did. Uh, we were able to get the cat. And as we started skinning out, as we walked up to it, I smelled skunk. And I was like, oh, man, there's a skunk somewhere around here. And <laughs> we kept on going, and we got closer. I was like, oh, man, this cat must have got sprayed by a skunk. And we're like, oh, okay, well, we're just And he's like, oh, all right, well, we'll still take the meat. But as we started gutting it, the skinning it, the scent, the smell of skunk just got stronger and stronger and stronger and then i was just like oh man no way there's no way did this cat just eat a skunk and we got done skinning it and before i started cutting the meat up i took the smell of the meat and the meat just ranked of skunk and so i opened up the gut and sure enough the skunk fell out of that fell out of the mountain line Oh my goodness! <laughs> Surprise! And told, yeah, and I just told him I was like, "Yeah, this is not going to happen." I mean, you can have the meat, but no, no. But uh, it's, it's totally up to you. You're gonna your meat's gonna smell like skunk. I mean, it's already seasoned. That's what I was teasing him. Right. What well, do you think that your population being down just a little bit, or maybe just the fact that it the cats moved out uh, to seek shelter from the from the weather. Do you, do oh, you... no. The, the, the population is still the same. It's still higher than ever, to be honest with you. I That's mean, we good. we trailed we trailed and treed three different cats in one location in about maybe a good 10-mile stretch. We we treed three toms in a 10-mile stretch in a 10, 10 square miles. Wow. And and that's about that's about how it is for around here. And the population is pretty good. And we've cut, I don't know, I think this, every time we came, went out with a client, we would cut at least two or three 
females with kittens. So we have a healthy population of cats. Well, that's great. That's great. And uh, it's so good to, to be able to talk to you, Calvin, and to see that you're still pursuing uh, you know, your exploits. We definitely thank you for your service. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I can personally vouch for anyone out there that's interested in booking uh, a mountain lion hunt. I didn't hunt with your dogs on bear. I do. Uh, we did get a nice bobcat while we were out there. Uh, so I can vouch for you as a as a professional guide that will work hard and and uh, you've definitely got the territory and you've got the cat uh, the lion population so we'll try to post a uh, link to your website in the show notes uh, for this episode uh, and i'll also post it on on facebook so that anybody that's interested in booking uh, a uh a lion hunt or a bear hunt with you can do so. Now, you call your guide agency Rez Hounds. Is that right? Yeah, um, exactly like that. R-E-Z-H-O-U-N-D-S. And, and uh, it's, not really, it's not really the website. It's just uh, social media through Facebook and Instagram. Okay. It's kind of what I run underneath them. Yeah. And you got some great-looking merch out there. Uh, in fact, when you came out with your new hoodie like i need a hoodie like a hole in the head but i had to have one they're really neat they're they're great and uh, i got that hat i wear all the time and i get a lot of comments about that your logo it's pretty neat did you design that logo yourself yeah uh, like i said when i came back uh, i did a couple two years of college and then i gave college up but when i was there i did I did some uh, computer design and computer graphics, and I came up with that logo, and that's been a staple of, you know, of what I do around here. So, Well, I, uh, you know, it's such a beautiful part of the world. It's such, uh, it, I would urge anybody that has the opportunity or traveling in the Southwest to go and visit the Navajo Nation because the people are warm. Uh, the the scenery is phenomenal. What is that one place that we could see from ever? Is like Ship Rock or something like that? Yeah, um, you got you got Ship Rock, um, which is in a lot of you know Hollywood movies, and then you got Monument Valley, of course. You know where Forrest Gump, <laughs> where Forrest Gump did that long stretch of road, and then he's like, oh, I I, I think I'm done Sorry. running. So that's <laughs> yeah. over there. You've got the Grand Canyon that's just right on the the west side of the reservation. You've got Canyon de Chez, which is more, which is kind of where you guys stayed. Yeah, that was is, awesome. I, in my opinion, it was more beautiful. Than, it is. It's more beautiful than the Grand Canyon. So. It is. It's gorgeous. And uh, it's right there near where we stayed. What was the name of that uh, inn that, or, or hotel there that we stayed? Uh, it was uh, Thunderbird Lodge is where Thund- you guys stayed. Right, right. Recommend it. To anyone out there listening, if you want a unique vacation spot, you're going through the Southwest, be sure to to, to see these uh, these areas. Well, Calvin, it's just great to be able to touch base with you again. Uh, we've been at this about an hour and five minutes. I told you we'd do an hour, and I know you 
have things to do. Are you, uh, you're, you say now you're at this time of year, you're mainly just hunting with yourself or by yourself? Yeah. Um, all the clients are done with, um, now it's just by myself and taking the dogs out and, um, teaching these young pups on, on oh, what needs yeah. to happen. So right now just back to training. Well, I want to get back with you and have you on again, and we'll talk about how you go about training a lion dog and a bear dog and all. Now, what, again, are those seasons? If somebody want to book a hunt with you for next year, what would they do? Okay, um, so we got, for bear season, we got two seasons. We got the spring bear season, which is um, the middle of April to the middle of May. So it's about three and a half weeks long, which is our spring bear season. Um, and then our mountain lion season runs from October 1st all the way to June 31st. Hmm. And then our fall bear season is, it ends on October 15th and it starts in September 1st. So it's like two and a half months is our fall bear season. And so those are the, the seasons for for hunting those animals. Okay. The bear, the bear season, the bear tags are all lottery draw tags. So you put in and hopefully cross your fingers and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you draw one, but mountain lions, obviously, like, you know, are all over the counter. So as soon as October 1st hits, you can put in your application and get your mountain lion tag. Awesome. Awesome. And, a great opportunity for anybody that loves the outdoors and wants to take a big game trophy over hounds. I I don't think you could find a better place. Calvin, it's been great to be with you today. I, I just uh, I don't get to talk to you enough, and I, that's my fault, I'm sure. But uh, we'll be in touch, and we'll have you back on the show. Is there anything that I should have talked about with you that we didn't talk about? Oh no! I think we pretty much hit the general basis of what we what we originally discussed, just to get some general information to the public and uh, try to educate people. So I think we got we got everything handled, I believe. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think so too. And and it's great to have you on. And I, I just hope that there's another hunt out there in my future. I sure would like to do that. And. Uh, uh, maybe you could put me on one of those mules because I don't, <laughs> I don't think I want to walk over very much of that seventeen point five million acres. <laughs> but yeah, uh, uh, the invite's there. You want to come out? We just got to get you a tag, and I'll put you on one of the older mules that. <laughs> there that you I put go. The kids on so <laughs> the kids. I try, the kids. That mule takes care of the kids, so you'll be all right. Yeah. I got to ask you one thing. Three years ago when I was out there, a longtime friend from Michigan, Mel Guntzviller, was out there. He and his wife, Rhonda, were hunting. Did they come back out? Um, this time they didn't come out this season because of COVID. Um, they're, they're the um, uh, Mel, Mel's um, mother-in-law contracted COVID, so they didn't want to you know, just yeah, leave her there. So they mm-hmm. decided to stay there and not come out this season but um i've got some of their gear here they usually leave gear here with me <laughs> that way they don't have to haul it back and forth yeah. from minnesota so yeah. all their gears some of their gear is still here that they left so 
they they plan on coming back out this coming season. Well, that's good. They're great folks. Some of, Mel and I served on the board of the Michigan Bear Hunters together uh, back uh, several years ago. Well, once again, Calvin Redhouse, great to uh, to talk to you. We're going to bring on uh, now after we kind of hang up here, Calvin. I've been doing a segment on my podcast with my friend Fred Moran in Pennsylvania that's 85 years old, still coon hunts five or six, four or five nights a week, uh, and has some great stories. So we're going to go to Fred Moran. Calvin will tell you goodbye out there in the Navajo Nation, and I hope you have a great year, buddy. Well, folks, it's that time that we look forward to every week when we uh, have our good friend Fred Moran over in the hills of Pennsylvania check in with us. How are you today, Fred? Feeling good? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Feeling real good. Well, what's going on today? Tell us something. Well, I wanted to ask you about what you thought of this. Years ago, we didn't have a coon club around here anywhere close. Uh, We had the one in Blairsville, but that was about the closest one. That's 50 miles from me. Anyhow, uh, we had a a guy offer us a building to use for his uh, coon club. It was nothing but a square wooden shack out in the middle of a field, and the only thing it had in it was a light bulb. And a sign above the door says Camp Ozark. But it became our coon club for, oh, a good two or three years. And uh, uh, we put on the Pennsylvania State Championship out of it and uh, so forth and got a good crowd. Uh, No record crowd, but got a good crowd. And... uh, it, it was in a black community, uh, probably the population there is 15,000 today, and it's probably, oh, 8,000 black. And there was a lot of coon hunters that was black in that. Uh, most of them are gone now. The two old inhabitants, some nice guys in there. And we never had a problem of any type uh, with it. And we, oh, them guys are good for playing tricks on one another. You think, you think us whiteies are bad. We get together with them and they argue who got the best dog all the time. You can't beat my dog. We had one old black uh, guy. His name was Ed Saunders. Real nice guy. Do anything in the world for you. Had an old black dog named Joe. He wanted darn near every great hunt they had. Joe was tough. And I had a I had a black buddy that used to hunt with me all the time. His that you wouldn't even know him by his right name, but everybody called him Cotton. Cotton Powell. He he had some money. He owned two coal mines and a bar. And when I'd go to Wyoming every year, I'd go out there, deer, antelope, elk cotton, and so forth. I went there for about 15 years. And until I got shot, then that's a different story. And uh, anyhow, old uh, cotton always used to keep <laughs> my dogs while I was gone and take them up his place. And there was some white guy, Frank, 
always says his dog's better than magic in that. I said, good. Uh, he said, can I take him and have a challenge hunt between ourselves? I said, I don't care what you do. Treat him like he's yours. Okay. When I come back from Wyoming, he told me, he says, Fred, guess what? I got beat by Frank's dog. All the guys know about it. And they just had a challenge hunt, and all the members of the club went along. And old Frank's dog beat. I never hunted with Frank's dog. And I know it was some sort of black dog, that's all. But that about broke Cotton's heart. Oh, magic was his. A dog, you, you, there ain't another dog like it, but he got beat that night. They went hunting Frank's dog, treated coon. Magic didn't get no part of it or something. I don't remember all the details. But, uh, and we used to put on water races on Sundays. We had a big uh, pond, and the farmer let us do anything we wanted. And one, we didn't have no pulley or anything like the good guys have today. One guy would be rowing a boat. Packy was there. Packy, as you know, has a big mouth. We didn't need a microphone. He could announce anything. And Packy would be the announcer. would have guys there, uh, two rowing the boat. And the other one had the rope and pulled a coon up the tree and that. We had some big crowds on Sunday. They put it in a newspaper. They got a hold of it and somehow published it in the newspaper. It was a water race open to the public. Them women that played bingo came out to our water race, and we'd bet on the dogs. We had a crowd of two, 300 people, most of them women, betting on the dogs uh, on a Sunday. That was something to see. Laugh, and there was an old moonshiner who used to come to me, and he didn't understand the rules about the betting, and he'd buy the whole cast instead of buying one or two. <laughs> I said, his name was, and they called him Cat. I said, Cat, you can't win no money. You're winning your old money back, and you're losing some. And he said, that's all right. I buy them all. I buy them all. <laughs> Oh, we had some times on that. Them women go nuts. They'd start arguing. That's my dog, that red dog. Not yours is the blue one. And, oh, they were good old days back then. And uh, Well, I don't just, think our listeners, a lot of them, especially if they're fairly new to the sport, remember just what a big deal it was to have a coon a hound event at a local club on a Saturday where uh, did you had these activities, treeing contests, water race, maybe a field trial, uh, the Calcutta that you're talking about there, uh, you know, placing the dogs, you know, in the heats and then, uh, and then the finals and the grand finals and all, all that that uh, entailed. And, you know, that's really how I got my start in this sport, you know, working as a secretary in my local club when I was just a teenage kid in high school, you know, and it was a big thing. You know, a coonhound event was an all-day affair, wasn't it? Yes, about. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great story, Fred, and uh, it's always good to hear from you. Have you been hunting any lately? Last night, uh, I, I be, well, 
I don't go on Sundays. It's rare. And I won't go Sunday, but I go just about every time it's dark. Well, that's a good, the best time to go, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, Fred, it's great to hear from you again, and we'll be checking back with, in with you next week right here on the Gone to the Dogs podcast with Fred Moran, the Red Bone Man. Thank you, sir. You have a great day. All right. 